Welcome to Wednesday Word, a Bible study led by Pastor John Jenkins of Northport Baptist Church. All right, well, let's turn to Acts 13. We've been looking at Acts 13. We might get through it today, probably not. We're at the end, but we still probably won't get through it. But Acts 13 is a great, great chapter and teaches us so many things. And of course, if you remember, it starts out with the church of Antioch. And so now, really, Christianity has kind of shifted from the church of Jerusalem. And it has shifted to where now the center of Christianity is Antioch. And so that becomes kind of the primary church and the sending church for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so one of the things you're going to see as we study the book of Acts, and if you study Christianity, the history of Christianity, you're going to see is that the center of Christianity changes a lot. And so the spread of the gospel, of course, does what God's Word says it does. It's going to spread, and it's going to continue to go to the ends of the earth. But the sad reality of that is what we're experiencing now in our nation, uh, where Christianity spreads for whatever reason, once we receive Christ and once we receive that peace and that joy and just that eternal security of eternal life, something happens to us from a standpoint of our flesh and becoming apathetic and becoming not as we once were from a zeal standpoint. And so that happens everywhere. And it's happened throughout Christianity. And you can trace the spread of the gospel. And you can trace it from Jerusalem, and you go to Antioch, and then just big spots where there's a lot more, but then you can go to like Rome, and then you can go to other parts of Europe, northern Europe, and then you can see it traced to the United States and certain parts of the United States, particularly New England. Where, what are you going to find if you go to New England today? You're going to find unlost. I mean, you're going to find a people group that's lost. I mean, it's an unreached people group because it's less than 2% of the population believe. But you can even trace that it shifted south. And so now what are we seeing in the south? Same thing. We're not, America is not the center of Christianity. And so you can just trace that through the history of 2,000 years of Christianity. And so you see it even early on in the book of Acts. And so I wish it wasn't that way. But it's that way. And if you don't believe it's that way, just go study all the churches in the Bible that Paul planted. You know how many of them are there today? None, none of them. I mean, you can go to Ephesus. Good luck finding the church at Ephesus. I mean, you can go wherever you want to. Go to Revelation, the seven churches. Are they there? No, they're ruins of them. There's artifacts of them, but there's... No believers there. It's not alive. It's not active. And so it is just for whatever reason the sad reality of Christianity. And so I'm praying against this, but uh, as we think about our context here, especially in the West and in the United States, uh, you know, there's never been an awakening or a revival in a place where Christianity has come and gone. You realize that? In the history of Christianity. So once Christianity comes, once Christianity goes and leaves, and why does it leave? Because of us. Okay, once it leaves, there has never been a revival in a post-Christian society or an awakening or a mass move of God, however you want to say it. Never. Uh... Well, I mean, I mean, I have my thoughts, but it's our hearts. No, their hearts are, well, I mean, there's multiple reasons. I mean, hard hearts, definitely one of them, biblical, hard hearts, definitely one. Uh... But let's just think about it from this room, okay? Let's just go to this room. How passionate are you about telling people about Jesus? 
Now, how passionate are you? Think about this. I mean, is this your forethought in your mind? Is this your heart? Is this your passion? Now, you know when I say passion, what that means, okay? If you want to see passion in the fall, go to an Alabama football game. People are passionate, correct? And they're yelling, and they're screaming, and they're mad because somebody ran the ball instead of threw the ball, or whatever it is. They're passionate, correct? Some of you are too. I understand that. I'm passionate. I like sports, but we're passionate about that. Okay, how many churches do you go in that you see that type of passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Anywhere? Has anybody been there lately? Well, but that's new believers. Okay, that's newness. That's freshness. That's a new start. Okay? So that's part of it. Okay, but let's talk about the big part of it, biblically. Okay, Romans 1, still in your Bible. Okay, what happens in Romans 1 is when people turn from God and stop worshiping God and stop worship, start worshiping the things He created, then what does God do? He just abandons them. He lets them go. That's what He does. He lets them go. So He lets a society, He lets a people go. And what does He give them? What they want. That's what He gives them. Their heart. He gives them their heart's desire. They get what they want. Now that's not a good thing. Okay? That's not a good thing. Now, I tell you all the time about Romans 1, the reason God does this, it's, it is judgment, but it's not judgmental because God's heart for it is redemption. Okay? He lets us go. Why? In hopes that we will return. Prodigal son, it's the story. Romans 1 is the story of the prodigal son. What does the father represents God, by the way, in Luke chapter 15. What does he do for his prodigal son? He lets him go, though. He lets him go to the ends of the earth with all his money, right? With all the blessings, with everything he wants. So what do we get when we receive Christ? We get everything, right? We get our inheritance, do we not? Yeah, you get an inheritance. What do you get? You get eternal life. You get joy. You get peace. You get freedom from sin and bondage. You get it. Okay? So if we turn from that, He lets us go. But from a societal standpoint, most people don't have that inheritance. Because why? Because we don't share the message. Because we're not passionate about it. Right? I've just concluded that. Okay? That's right. Okay, so he lets the society, he lets a culture, he lets a people go in hopes that they will return. But I'm just telling you, have you ever tried to plant seed in rock? Anybody ever done that? Okay, it's hard work. It's hard work. Okay, so hard hearts rarely turn back to God. And we talk about this all the time from a child's perspective and an adult perspective. I mean, in our society, and this is just true, not everywhere, but especially our society, if you don't become a follower of Jesus Christ by the age of 18, the odds of you coming to Christ are slim. About 85, almost, percent of people who come to Christ in America come before the age of 18. Why? Because their hearts aren't hard yet. Okay? And so now the problem is, who is Satan targeted and is who is Satan getting in our society? The children, because he's already got the adults. He's, we're done. And so that's the target now. And if you can't see that, I can't help you. I mean, if you can't see even what our agenda of our president is, I can't help you. I mean, you had a transvestite who was a high-ranking cabinet official say two weeks ago, that the primary objective of this administration is to allow children who think they're transgender or want to change sexes the availability to do that. And that is a priority. And then this is what he said. He's not, it's not a she, it's a he. He said 
it is going to become the norm. That's out of the mouth, out of the mouth. This will become normal. Okay. We don't let children drink alcohol. Why? There's a very good reason for that, but yet we're going to let them choose their gender. I mean, it's just, it's insanity. But what is Romans 1, where does it lead? To insanity is where it leads. Okay, so once you get to that point as a society, do you think the society is going to turn and choose God? Some will. I mean, God's still moving and working, but on a mass spectrum from a revival and awakening standpoint, it has never happened. Now, does it mean it cannot happen? No, it does not mean it cannot happen. But, buddy, I'm telling you what, it ain't going to happen without the church. And so what is the church concerned with? Well, a lot of things besides the gospel and besides Jesus and besides life change. And so we get tied up in all these things. Where do we get tied up? Well, pretty soon you're going to get tied up in legal action because of transgenderism, homosexuality, all these things. And that becomes our focus, and that's where our money goes to defend ourselves, whatever. So it's not malicious. It's not even intentful. But it's ha what happens. It's Nineveh. I mean, it's the story of Nineveh. I mean, 100 years after the greatest revival on earth, literally, one city, a half a million people saved. Two generations later, they're not off the face of the earth because they don't repent and turn back to God. So that's why, I mean, other reasons, but that's why. It's unfortunate. But you see Christianity shifting is the whole point of that. And so you're going to see it through the book of Acts. You're going to see it throughout the history of the church. Now one day, that will change. And the one thing that's going to change it is we're going to get really, really close to the coming of Christ. Okay, and what's going to have to happen before Christ comes? The gospel has to go forth. All the nations must hear. Then the end will come. So that's Matthew 24, 14. Okay, so that's the only thing I believe is going to change it now. But here's the thing. Don't look at Christianity as large based on a myopic view in the bubble of America. More people are coming to Christ around the world today than any time in the history of the world. Not here, but there. So don't get so consumed in a myopic bubble that you don't understand God is moving in incredible ways throughout the earth, okay? Now, does that mean we give up where we are? No, because God planted us where we are, right? So it's a both and. So we're called to take the gospels into the earth, but we're also called to share the gospel here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, right where we are. And so the only way I think America can change is through God's word and through repentance. And how's that going to come from the church and bubble out? So I'm a whole lot more worried about the church than I am society at large. Because society at large has no idea. They have skills over there. They're blind as bats. They're crazy. They're insane. I can point to plenty of examples of that. But the church is the one straying from the Word of God and straying from repentance. And that's why we're where we're at. So you're going to see that through a message that Paul preaches. And so really Acts 13 after the church of Antioch, now the center of Christianity, sends the apostle Paul out. He preaches his first recorded sermon anyway, biblically. Now, I'm sure he's preached other sermons. By this point, he's been a follower of Christ somewhere between three and four years. And so he's been being discipled by Barnabas. He is being taught. And, of course, we looked at earlier in Acts where Jesus took him to the desert. And Jesus spoke into him for a long time and discipled him, kind of his as Paul's seminary, basically. And so now he's ready, because how do we know he's ready? The Holy Spirit of God says he's ready, because in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit speaks to the church of Antioch and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, because he's called them out, and he's sending them out now. And so they send them out, and so they go and they preach the gospel. And so last week we looked at the first sermon that he preached. 
and he went to another Antioch, not the Antioch that we looked at that sent them out, but it's a different part of the area that has the same name of a town. So this is Antioch as well, of Poseidon, but I want to read you a little bit of his sermon. We looked at most of it last week, but I just want to focus on a little bit this week because it is Holy Week, and I want you to see what Paul talks about. Now remember what he does, and this is what you're going to see all through the book of Acts. On the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday, of course, he goes to the temple, and they can build a temple anywhere there are 10 Jewish men. A synagogue, I'm sorry. Wherever there are 10 Jewish men. Okay, and so they have a place here, a synagogue where they worship. And what they do is they go read from the law of Moses and they read from the prophets and then someone will stand up and talk. Well, Paul and Barnabas walk in and so it's pretty obvious that both of those guys are pretty good Jewish dudes. I mean, I told you last week, Barnabas is from the tribe of what? Levi, which is the priestly tribe. And then Barnabas is, or Paul is a Pharisee. So they walk in, it's like, well, you want to hear from these guys. So Paul stands up, raises his hands, basically telling them to shut up, listen to me. And he starts with the law of Moses, and he goes through the Old Testament pretty quickly in a couple of sentences so he can get to Jesus. And look at what he says. Look at verse 26 there of Acts 13. He says, Brothers, you sons of Abraham, and also you God-fearing Gentiles... Now again, if this would have been in Jerusalem, this wouldn't be possible. Why? Because in Jerusalem, what did they do? They separated Jews from Gentiles. And the reason they did that is because Pharisees like to put boundaries or fences around the Word of God. And so they would make up rules and they would make up things to protect the law of God. That was one of them. Okay, and the reason for that, do you know what the word Gentile means? It means unclean. Goim, unclean. That's what it means. So that they separated themselves from the unclean. Okay, now let's think back to God. Did God do that? Okay, go all the way back to Abraham. Okay, what did God tell Abraham? He said, Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to who? You're going to be a blessing to the people of Israel. It's not what he says, is it? You're going to be a blessing to who? The nations. Okay, is that the way the Jewish people lived? No, what did they do? They insulated themselves, they bubbled themselves, and everybody else is unclean, and they're the chosen ones, right? God did some things throughout the Old Testament, if you'll read it, to try to get them out of that. Did they ever get out of that? Okay, what do we do as the church in America? Do we not do the same thing? Bubble ourselves, insulate ourselves, try to keep everybody out that's not like us, right? We do that. The church has done that a long time. It's one of the reasons we're in the shape we're in. But here, because it's not in Jerusalem, there are Gentiles, there are Jews there. And this is what he says. He says, this message of salvation has been sent to us. Now, who's it sent to? Just the Jews? No, it's to everyone. Now, it was sent to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. We're going to look at that. But look at verse 27. The people in Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus as the ones the prophets had spoken about. Okay, now who are the leaders that Paul's talking about there? He's talking about the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the high council, the chief priests, whom he was one, by the way. That's what he wanted to be, and that's what he wanted to do. He's talking about himself. Okay, they did not recognize Jesus as the one the prophets talked about. Okay, now remember, what did they just read from in the synagogue here? What did they read? They read from the law of Moses and what? The prophets. So more than likely, they read from the prophet Isaiah. Okay? Now if you read the prophet Isaiah, who does he talk about a lot? He talks about the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. And he talks about Jesus. And they failed to recognize it. And they failed to recognize it so much, what did they do? Instead... They condemned him, and in doing this, they fulfilled the prophet's words that are read every Sabbath in this very place. That's what he's talking about. They fulfilled him. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. Okay. Did Jesus do anything wrong? Mm -mm. 
So why did he go to the cross? Because of our hard hearts. That's why he went to the cross, because of our sinfulness, because we don't recognize him. So just think about what had to happen. I hope you're reading this week about Holy Week. Just think about all that had to happen for Jesus to go to the cross. Okay? So let's just fast forward to Wednesday because there's a lot that happens in the Holy Week and last week of Jesus. Just fast forward to Wednesday. Okay? Every day Jesus is staying or he's sleeping in Bethany and he's coming to Jerusalem, so he's going back and forth. Okay, now that's a pretty good hike, by the way. It's a few miles, probably five, six miles at that point. But that's what he's doing. So Wednesday at Bethany, Wednesday night, he goes to the home of Simon the leper. Okay, so probably someone he healed of leprosy. But they still know him as what? Simon the leper, because he had leprosy. But he had been healed, or they wouldn't be eating at his house, I guarantee you. So he had been healed. And so they're eating at his house, Jesus and the disciples. And this is where Mary of Bethany, which is... Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sister, okay? What happened in John chapter 11? Jesus raised her brother from the dead. So not long before this, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so now Mary, his sister, goes to this house somewhere in Bethany, probably a neighbor, and what does she do? She takes oil. Okay, now remember... A lot of people get this confused because there's a story in Luke chapter 7 where someone else does this, but it's a different story, okay? Okay, this story is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John, Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus. Now in Luke chapter 7, the one that does it anoints his feet. What does Mary do? She anoints his head. And she has some type of oil, some type of fragrance, some type of perfume, basically, in an alabaster jar, and she pours it over his head, and it runs down to his feet. Then she gets down and wipes the feet of Jesus. But, of course, Jesus says she's doing this, what? To prepare him for burial, to anoint his body for burial. Okay, so what happens right after this, though? There's one that gets really ticked off when he sees Mary do this. It's Judas Iscariot. Okay, so Judas had already had doubts about Jesus at this point. He was already questioning. He was already having some struggles. But this is the point that tipped him over the edge. And so then he goes to the Pharisees and agrees to do what? Betray Jesus. Hand him over. That's what he's going to do. Hand him over. Okay, so that's when it happens. Okay, had Jesus done anything wrong? Now, had he ticked the Pharisees off? You better believe it. What did he do Monday afternoon? He cleansed the temple. And you know what he did when he cleansed the temple for the leading dudes anyway? He took their money. That's what he did. Because cleansing the temple, he basically drove out money changers. He drove out all the people selling crap for Passover week because what they would do is if you would come in, and let's just say you were from North Africa, but you were coming in to worship for Passover, well, your money is different than their money. So what would they do for you? Well, they would exchange it for you. You know what? with a price, and you got shafted. Well, what happened to the extra money they made? Well, whoever was doing it got to keep a little from themselves, but where were they doing this? In the temple. So they had to pay a tax, I guarantee you. And so the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, the council, they got all that money. But not only that, if you're traveling from wherever you're coming through, coming to Jerusalem because you have to celebrate the Passover, are you going to bring sacrifices with you? That's a hard trip, bringing a lamb, bringing pigeons, bringing whatever doves you're going to sacrifice. So what did they have for sale? Everything you need. You can buy it all. And guess what? They charged a hefty price for it because they didn't care about your worship. What did they care about? Lining their pockets with some change. And so Jesus cleared that baby out Monday afternoon. It's a great story. Go read it. So he cleared it out. Did that tick them off? You better believe that ticked them off. Then you go read about Tuesday. And you know what happened? He engaged the Pharisees, and he had some pretty harsh words condemning them. So they're already ticked off at this point about Jesus, but had Jesus done anything wrong? Had he said anything wrong? Had he lied about them in any way? He's just calling out their sin, right? Do you like your sin to be called out? I mean, if I could call, I can't, but if I could call out your sin right now, you wouldn't like it, would you? I wouldn't like it if you could call out my sin. I guarantee it. But 
we don't like that. But Jesus called out their sin. And so they're ready to get rid of him. And they don't want to do it the week of Passover. Why? Because they think it'll cause a riot. They don't want to do it. But they're ticked off enough, they're going to do it. And now they got the guy to do it on Wednesday night. And then on Thursday, you know what happens. After the Lord's Supper, they go to the Mount of Olives. And what does a battalion of soldiers, those are Roman soldiers, but also they're a temple guard, and realize that the temple guard are the only Jews that are allowed to carry weapons. And why do they get to carry weapons? Do you know? Because they guard the treasury of the temple. That's why. How much money do you think is in that baby? A lot. If, they're, I guarantee, if uh, Romans are allowing Jews to carry weapons, a lot of money's in there. That's what they're there for is to guard the treasury. But they're coming to arrest Jesus. Not, they're not back guarding the money. They're taking care of the one who's threatening their money. And so they, along with Roman soldiers, come to arrest Jesus. And who else is with them leading the charge? Judas. And what does Jesus do? Betrays him with a kiss so that they will know who Jesus is. And then, of course, they arrest Jesus. And then after midnight, Jesus is tried three times in the middle of the night. Okay, is that legal? Okay, Paul's going to say here, you have no grounds for this. There is no basis for what you did. But they did it anyway. Go to Anna's house, go to Caiaphas's house. Then they have a quorum of the Sanhedrin that meet. All of them condemn Christ Jesus to the cross. Okay, then the problem is they have no authority to do that. So where do they go next? Pilate's house. Now here's the great question. Could they have killed Jesus on their own? Yeah, they could have. They, did, they do it later in Acts. They stoned Stephen, right? For the same things they're claiming Jesus did. The exact same thing. But they want him hung on a tree. Why? Cursed. Okay, they want him hung on a tree. And so this is, I mean, I know, I kind of shared this Sunday, but I know we think of the cross and how crucifixion happened. But in Jerusalem, that's not how it happened. They literally had trees sitting at Golgotha. They're still planted in the ground. And that's how, even in Acts 5, Peter can say, you hung him on a tree. That's what Paul says here. We took him off of a tree. You took him down off of a tree. He was literally hung on a tree. And that's why the chief priests and the Pharisees wanted him crucified. Because according to Old Testament law, anyone that is hanging from a tree is cursed by God. And Jesus literally hung from a tree in Jerusalem. Now, in other places of the Roman Empire, they crucified other ways. And that's how we get the example of how we see the cross. That's not the way it was in Jerusalem just not the way it was. But that's why we get multifaceted ways of seeing crosses. But they hung him on a tree. But they had no authority, no grounds, no guilt that they could condemn Jesus to die. And so just an interesting fact here. In Jewish law, Jewish law is similar to our law because our law is based off of it, basically, if you read the Bible. Okay, in Jewish law, basically the prosecuting attorney would be the one who would bring the charge or who would accuse someone. Okay, so for the chief priest, the big thing about Judas was not telling them who Jesus was. Do you think they knew who Jesus was? Of course they knew who Jesus was. That's not what it means when it says that Judas was going to betray Jesus. That's not what it's talking about. He was going to be the prosecuting attorney. He was going to have to be the one to stand in front of the high council, in front of the chief priest, and say, this is what Jesus did, this is why you condemn him, and he was going to be the one to prosecute Jesus. That's what it means, not to hand him over. Okay, and we know this because of Jewish law, but we also know this because of this. Okay, when they get to Caiaphas' house, the second trial, what do they have to do to try Jesus? They have to try to find someone out of the crowd to do this, right? Okay, go read the story. They're looking for anybody they can find to throw a charge that sticks at Jesus. But what can they not find? They can't find anybody to do it. They really can't. They do it, but... Everybody knows it's a farce. Even the chief of that is ain't going to stick. And so finally, what does Caiaphas have to do? He has to get up and question Jesus himself, which is illegal, highly illegal in Jewish law. But he stands up himself. 
And all he does is ask Jesus a question. Are you the son of God? And Jesus answers that question. And he tells him this. Yeah, it's as you say. And soon you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, that's a reference to the rapture when he comes back for his people. If you go read Revelation 14, read 1 Thessalonians, that's what that's talking about. And so what does Caiaphas do? He tears his priestly robe, which again, highly illegal, and he condemns Jesus to die. So everything they did was a farce, a scam. I mean, how many people do you know in the United States that's tried in the middle of the night? It doesn't happen, right? Because it's not legal. Okay, so the same thing happened in Jerusalem that night with Jesus. Nothing they did was legal. They had no grounds to do it. And that's what he's saying here. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. So just as you read the story of the Holy Week, just see all the things that they did to Christ to get him to the cross. And ultimately, I know it's God's plan, but it just shows you the hardness of our heart. And what we'll do to get what we want, right? And the Pharisees did whatever they had to do to get what they wanted. And they bent and they broke laws to do it. Are we not the same way? Of course you are. Of course you are. You'll do what you have to do and justify whatever you got to justify to get what you want. That's just who we are. That's the hardness of our heart and our flesh. And without Christ and without the Holy Spirit, well, you're in sad shape. I'm just telling you. Because we struggle with the Holy Spirit. Think about those without him, okay? And so that's what Paul's talking about here. I mean, there's so much. We could talk about this all day. There's so much there. But then he keeps going in his sermon, verse 29. He says, and when they had done all that, the prophecy said about him, they took him down from the cross and they placed him in a tomb. Oh, but thank God for verse 30. But God, don't you love that conjunction? But but God raised him from the dead. And that's the message of Easter. And without that message, we have no hope because without the resurrection of the dead, everything that happened to Jesus Christ could have happened to anybody else. But now we know he's exactly whom the prophet said, whom God said in his word, because God raised him from the dead. And it goes on, verse 31, And over a period of many days he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, and they are now his witnesses to the people of Israel. And now we are here to bring you this good news. And boy, it is good news. And what happened when the people heard this good news? Well, it's amazing. Look down, because I love this. Look at verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged them to speak about these things again next week. Now, did they think it was good news? Well, obviously, they thought it was good news. Many Jews and devout converts of Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, and the two men urged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. Now, look at verse 44. This tells you just how good the news is. The following week, meaning the next Sabbath day, so the next Sabbath, they're meeting again. The following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. Now, what would we do if the entire city showed up here Sunday morning? Well, I hope we would rejoice. But is that what happened? No, I'll keep reading. That ain't what happened. Look at verse 45. The same thing happened here that happened in Jerusalem. But when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were what? Jealous. So they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. Now here's what you got to understand. Now I've been telling you the whole book of Acts is about the works of the Holy Spirit of God, right? Okay, that's the book of Acts. It's not about the work of the apostles. It's not about the work of the church. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit. Now how you know that is verse 44. Is that the work of the Holy Spirit of God? An entire city coming out to hear the word of the Lord. I'm telling you, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. That ain't happening by you or me or anybody else, even the Apostle Paul. 
But guess who else is working when God is working? Satan's at work, right? And here's the thing about Satan. It ain't too hard for him, by the way. Because what did he do? He didn't do much of nothing. I mean, he probably pricked a little bit, but he used their jealousy. So probably what happened, we don't know, the Bible doesn't say specifically, but probably what happened, I mean, the leader of the synagogue's there. Well, nobody comes like this to hear me preach. I'm doing this every week of my life. And two or three or four or five Jews come, maybe some Gentiles that even converted, maybe some other Gentiles that want to hear. Now a stinking whole city's here. Not to hear me, but to hear who? This outsider? This guy from Jerusalem who claimed to be a Pharisee, but now he's not. And what did it do to his heart? Made him jealous, right? What's the root of jealousy? What's the root of all sin? Okay, what does Satan play on every time? Because that's who he is, right? I mean, you want to talk about somebody prideful, go read about Satan. What did he want to be? He wanted to ascend to the hill of God. He wanted to be like God. That's why he hates you, because you are like God. You're made in God's image. He's not. He hates you. So he plays to your pride, plays to your jealousy. And so he found enough people that he could manipulate, and that's what he did. So they were jealous, and they slandered and argued against whatever Paul said. So it wouldn't have mattered what he said. They're going to argue against it. So this is what happens next, verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared. I love that. Don't you wish we had some of that in our day? I wish some preachers would get a backbone and they would speak boldly the Word of God. we got too many wimps, but whatever. He says, it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. Now, why was that necessary? Well, go read John 1. Jesus says it was necessary, by the way. Go read John 1. Before it says, he became flesh, it says that he came to his own, meaning who he descended from. Okay? But what happened? <laughs> we shared the word of God with you Jews first, but since you have what? Rejected it. Now, this verse is going to be important in a minute. But since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. Now, who judged them unworthy of eternal life? They judged themselves, right? Okay, that's going to become important in a minute. Okay, so now we take it to where God said it was going anyway, to everyone, to the Gentiles. That means the rest of the world, those who are unclean according to the Jews. Verse 47, For the Lord, get, the Lord gave us this command when He said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. And do you know who the light to the Gentiles are, by the way? That's a quote of Isaiah 49. Who do you think He's talking about? The Jewish people is who it's supposed to be. But are they? No. Why? Because they've rejected the message. They've rejected it. So what does He do? He sends Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. And now who are the light? Who is the light to the nations? Believers, anyone who believes. There's some Jews in that, but it's not just Jews, right? It's Jews and Gentiles. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad. They were filled with joy. And they thanked the Lord for His message. And all who were chosen for eternal life and became believers... So the Lord's message spread throughout that region. Okay, just real quick, the time we got left, let's talk about that verse because that verse is really important. And this one of the things that's even caused a schism in the church, especially in Europe and in America, with our theological leanings, I guess. But this is what it says. Look at verse 48 again. When the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for His message and all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. Okay. Now, what happened first there in that verse? Did they become believers and then they were chosen? Or were they chosen and then did they become believers? They were chosen first, right? Okay, so 
and we, we can go to other verses, and we'll look at another verse in a second, but in Christianity, in theological terms, you have different groups that believe different things about God's Word, okay? And so this is even a problem in Southern Baptist life right now, and you get in a lot of arguments and a lot of fights about this, which is insanity, but whatever. Okay, so we talk about the chosen or the elect. Okay, are you chosen? If you're a child of God, you're chosen, okay? And when were you chosen? For the foundations of the world, you were chosen. Okay, now to understand this, to even comprehend this, which we can't, by the way, okay, number one, you can't. That's why the Bible is written the way it is, but you can't comprehend this. But to try to understand this and comprehend this, I tell you this all the time as we've been talking about the end times, one thing you have to understand about God is God is what? Eternal. Okay, He's eternal. Okay. He does not live on a linear timeline. Now, how do we live our life? on a linear timeline. And we see everything past, present, future, right? That's how we see time. That's how we see life, isn't it? So what happened to you yesterday? Or what are you going for lunch? Okay, that's how we see time, right? It's not how God tells time. How do we know? Well, Second Peter tells us. A day is like what? A thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. Okay, God's eternal. He's an eternal being. Now, we're eternal beings in a sense that we're going to live forever in one place or the other, heaven or hell. Okay, so we are eternal beings as well, but right now we're linear beings. We're bound by time, correct? You know why we're bound by time? Because of the curse, because of sin. That's why we're bound by time. Was there time before the curse? We were eternal. Okay, now there's time, right? There's linear time. So that's how we see this, and when we think of salvation, how do we think of salvation? Linear, right? That's how we think about it. You can't think about it that way. Okay? Okay, so did God choose you before the foundations of the world? Yeah, because you're a created being. Okay, does that mean that God chose who were going to be saved and chose who were going to be lost? Okay, let's talk about it. Okay, whose is the work of salvation? It's God's. It ain't yours, okay? Sorry. You ain't got nothing you can give him. The work of salvation is God, and it is only God. Okay, it's his. It's his work. Okay. So you're a created being, right? Okay. So God created you, right? Okay. At the foundation of the world, at the foundation of creation... Did God choose you? Okay. So the question is, who did he choose? Well, I can tell you who, according to this, those who would believe. Okay, so here, here's, maybe this is a better way to look at it. Let me say it like this. God chose those who would be saved but did he choose those who would be lost? How do I know? Somebody go read verse 46 again. What does verse 46 say? Who judged themselves? They judged themselves. How did they judge themselves? To damnation, to separation, to not being chosen because they didn't believe. They rejected Jesus Christ, right? Is that not what it says? I mean, that's what it says. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, it was necessary for us to preach the word of God to the Jews, but since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. So did God judge them? They judged themselves because they rejected Jesus. So God chose the saved because He chose those who would believe. 
And those who rejected them, what? Chose something different. They chose themselves and they rejected Jesus. And they damned themselves because they didn't choose eternal life. Okay, so I know that can get convoluted. And because of this and because of the way the Bible's written, where you have verses like Ephesians 1 that talks about the chosen, talks about when God chose you, you have verses that talk about belief and choice, right? Okay, why does the Bible say those things when they seem almost in contradiction? I'll tell you why the Bible says those things. Because the Bible's written in a way to keep you grounded on what it says and to keep you within the boundaries of what it says. And what happens when you go too far outside one boundary or too far outside the other boundary? It leads to destruction. Okay? And just this argument here, we have two primary types of arguments here. You have one that leads towards Calvinism. You have one that leads towards Arminianism. Calvinism, if you take it to the end, is just all about the chosen and God's work through salvation. They use biblical language. Arminianism is all about choice and free will and your right to choose Jesus Christ. Guess what? They use Scripture. But both of them are schisms because they take things too far and they go outside of God's boundaries. And I've told you this, but God's Word, God's boundaries are there for your protection and they're like a river, a beautiful river. And if that river is inside its boundaries, it can be a great thing, right? People like to live on the river, don't they? Because they like to look at water. They like to fish. They like to use the river for recreation. So that river can provide so much joy and so much peace and tranquility and happiness. But what happens if that same river gets outside its banks and its boundaries? What does it do? Boy, there's some big destruction, right, with floods and everything else. Same thing is true with God's Word. When we stay here and don't do too far this way, too far this way, stay here, that's where we live. That's why the Bible's written to where it keeps us tethered to itself so that we don't skew. Does that make sense? When we skew, we're in trouble. And so I know people want to lump everybody in a theological realm. Don't let people do that. I, I'm, I don't do that. If anybody asks me what I believe, I believe the Bible. And I preach the Bible. That's what I do. Because I'm telling you, you go either way, then what happens is you read the Bible with your theological glasses on and it distorts what you read. Now, I know we all do that to an extent just because of what we've been taught, tradition, whatever. But you better be careful of that and you better stay to the Word of God. Because I'm telling you, one of the problems that happens if you go too far in Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism, what happens is evangelism missions goes to bunk. You know why? Well, God chose them. It's whatever He's going to do, He's going to do anyway. Well, is that what happened here? No, what happened? Look at verse 49. So the Lord's message spread throughout that region. The Lord's message continued to what? Spread. Who spread the message? Well, I'll tell you who spread it. It wasn't Paul and Barnabas. those who believed. Right? Because that's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. And so... Don't get too far one way or the other. Stay centered on the words of God. And that's why I tell you, I want you to know the word of God. And this, I mean, it's just, this is just important, this whole topic. Because just one last statement, okay. Can God save anyone he wants to save? He can, right? At any point, right? Does God do that? Now, some people say, yeah. Say, God's grace is this will. God can do whatever He wants to. He's going to save who He wants. Okay, God can save anybody He wants to. At any point He wants to. But is that how God's works? Okay, 2 Peter 3, 9, just a verse. Okay, God is really not slow about His promise, as some people think. This is talking about the second coming of Jesus. God is not really slow, being slow about His promise, as some people think. But what is He doing? He's being patient. And why is He being patient? Because He wants everyone to come to repentance and no one to be destroyed. Okay, if God saves everyone He wants at any time He wants... 
Why is that verse in the Bible? Because God is patient. And there will be some who believe and some who reject. Those who believe are chosen before the foundations of this earth. Right? That's what the Bible says. Go read Ephesians 1. We're chosen. But I'm just telling you, God did not choose those who are lost. They chose themselves. Now, did God know that before the foundation of the world? Of course He knew that before the foundation of the world. And is there a book that houses that? According to Revelation, there is. It's called the book of what? Life. Okay, when do you think that book was written? It ain't going to be written, and it ain't being written in real time as people believe. Okay? Does that make some semblance of sense? Okay, I still know it's confusing. It's, nobody's going to figure this out. And I know people that have spent their life trying to figure it out. But you know what I wish they would have done? Spent their life telling people about Jesus. Wouldn't that have been a better use of their life? Yeah. Because what are we commanded to do? Are we commanded to be theologians and to dive deep so we know everything about God and can explain God? Well, number one, you can't do that no matter how smart you think you are, by the way. And you weren't called to do that. Correct? What were you called to do? Go ye therefore and make disciples. That's what you were called to do. And share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we'd have done that and focused on that in the church, we probably wouldn't be in the problem we're in. But we are. So quit focusing on the minors and focus on the major. Jesus gives you the major. It's not hard to figure out. Just read the Bible. So just read the Bible. Thanks for tuning in today. Join us next week as Pastor John continues the study. And if you're looking for more, find us at northportbaptist.org.